0: We are very pleased to present Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguish. Avital Ronel is professor at the New York University, and since January 2020, she's invited by the Rencontre Philosophique de Monaco as guest philosopher in residence. A prolific author internationally known in the fields of philosophy, German literature, comparative literature, we are very pleased and we hope you enjoy. Avital Ronel's Survival Kit for the Anguished. Hi everyone, it's Avital. Today I'm uh, thinking about mortality and community, a uh, juncture on which we are dwelling. So, um, what have we learned if learning is at issue and at stake and what it means to learn something, what kind of transferential structures are implicated in learning a lesson, what kind of threat is commanded when someone says, I'll teach you a lesson. So in the case of the pandemic, there's something about suffering that has become a public action. And we are ask to surrender a sign of a certain kind of adherence in solitude to the collectivity because every act and semiotic um, kind of um, decision that we make to wear a mask, to be careful, to respect physical distances This is a decision based on a peculiar juncture of mortality and community that confront each other at every step of the way. So we'll continue to think about this. This is something that the Greeks took very seriously in their tragedies. When do you appeal to a higher order of of law giving? or when do you succumb to the laws of the polis, the nation, or whoever is wielding policing powers over you? So hello, bonjour, I am here on the day after confinement has been lifted, and I want to talk about what the French and the hosts in Monaco, call deconfinement, and how we've been face-to-face with the fatal incoherency of our social organization. Again, you don't need me to urge points of consideration and contemplation for the social disasters that have visited us, uh, or that have not visited us for the first time, but have had a specific way of being disclosed in their nihilistic grandeur and abyssal urgency. So something about the pandemic and the run of this virus, which is running loose and fast and going after apparently arbitrary, but not so arbitrary targets, the poor, the destitute, The truly needy are much more exposed than others, but not everyone is protected as you know. Again, you don't need me to make these more sociological points stick. You have other discursive formations on which you count, Um, but I guess I just wanted to lay out the premises of my own sense of indignation and anguish, Zalga, and how we want to think about what is happening, what continues to happen, what has always happened, what has not ceased to happen, and what we have trouble coming to grips with. So two days ago began what my hosts in Monaco and France call the deconfinement, marking a moment nearly arbitrarily appointed when we were let out of our domestic cages, whether gilded or spare, property or state owned. If I had the technologies and correlate crews, I would review with you now all manner of deconfinements, of lifting of quarantine limits, and of all the true deconfinements of consequence or even those which managed only to hit a blip on our historical radars. Not all moments of freeing up are are registered or chronicled, nor um, does history show kindness to those who lack the means of chronicling their pain. So, I may not have the requisite techies, but I do have fractal interiorities and imaginary sequencing of frames and memory traces, mine or collectively accumulated of scenes of deconfinement or liberation, which I'd like us to play as a backdrop to today's conversation to deploy this as a, perhaps as a plea and petition, a motivator capable of crashing through implacable barriers that airlift people blocked or locked, injured and insulted by restrictive conditions of carceral mercilessness. Now I've taught um, courses on what Foucault, the historical philosopher, has called the carceral subject um, and threading it all the way through Angela Davis's commitment to thinking about prison structures. So I have um, devoted myself to um, philosophical considerations of penitentiary culture and how greatly it is um, disavowed, especially in a country such as the United States that has shamefully and shamelessly the greatest number of penitentiary victims and um, inmates. So one of my questions has always been, how does this underground culture or locked up or locked away and sealed off culture leak or traumatically, I shouldn't say or, and traumatically structure in unacknowledged ways our civic identities and daily practices. It can't be that the only totem and sign of of this overwhelming flood of penitentiary grammars and behaviors um, and lockdowns yields only one sign or signal of its um, semiotic abundance, such as those beltless pants that people wear as a sign of solidarity with those inmates who are subjected to a prison dress code or rather a strip code. So One wants to understand how we've um, suppressed this knowledge of a crowded penitentiary system that must at least produce some kind of rhetorical unconscious and political um, puncturing that we want to be aware of. Um, how penitentiary and imprisonments um, and lockdowns of various sorts in fact signal if quietly and sometimes invisibly and leak into more mainstream types of political decisions and actions and inactions. Our own little allegory Sidelined allegory of confinement might have inspired more reflection on that part of and, and and no doubt, no doubt it did because you've you've heard all sorts of testimonial uh, lurches in that direction or or very clear memories of something that had never been marked before, namely. What is it like for those who must yield to solitary and state imposed um, imprisonment? So, as we expand the particulars of deconfinement, we not only attune ourselves to modalities of confinement that exceed recent episodes of house arrest and that include the experience of domestic civil war. Now here I could maybe indulge a sidebar and let you know that something that we all know on some level of consciousness, even if we haven't read Kafka, we know that he had a sense of family that um, spooks and haunts and hounds us, again, maybe in only unconscious ways. We do know and and boast um, recognition of Kafkaesque occurrences and and scenes of suffocating desperation. But for Kafka, he located the household as a site of penitentiary existence with his um, famous father's authoritarian recklessness. What's famous is Kafka's um, vexed relation to his father, who was very authoritarian, exploited his workers, uh, was kind of militaristically flexed, and also, um, imagine, anti-Semitic. The father was very assimilated and and uh, showed only disdain for Kafka's commitment to the Yiddish theater and um, learning about his Jewish heritage. So you didn't have to go far out of the realm of domestic confinement to find all of the uh, formerly maybe located aggressions and micro attacks or major threats that you found outside of the home in terms of um, internally marked racisms, exploitations, oppressions, and the production of fear that was relentless in the Kafka household. And I don't want to um, indicate a cartoonish sense of violence and intrusive traumatic uh, restrictiveness because Kafka also loved his family, and was very open-hearted and and tender toward his oppressors, and he wouldn't have been as oppressed if he hadn't been exposed by true tenderness and affection to the um, members of his families. I say families, but I should just say family, Um, many of whom were were deported and murdered in concentration camps. So let me um, return to the marking of something like a, a lifting of quarantine or lockdown and urge us not only to be alert to the dents that family life may have struck and stuck to our personalities such as they are During this time, when you were, a lot of you, confined with your bio or chosen or fabricated families, including internal tribunals, for those of you who stuck it out alone, um, let me say that we were not only, perhaps, attuned and alerted to our own capacities of developing and living with different types of solitude. So it's not just a matter of ticking off solitude versus isolation or even desolation, which was part of the beginning of our um, podcast typologies. I tried to mark differences in the kind of um, desolate sense of being isolated, but even solitude as something that at least French philosophers and certainly composers and uh, Goethe's poetry have celebrated um, what it means to to indulge einsamkeit or aloneness is always um, a supply center for poetic insight and understanding and the premises of joy even to be able to hold to one's um, essential solitude, let's say with Blanchot and Goethe and all the other poets, and Benjamin. Um, So let's think of the different types of solitude that have emerged or have announced themselves or were snuffed out by you. But there's all sorts of moments or modalities of solitude that we want to be aware of for all sorts of reasons. And certainly with the understanding that or the great philosopher Spinoza, we're not ever really solitary. In other words, we're always worked on, traversed by others, marked by the encounter with others. We know only shared affect. So even if, as we said last time, you're feeling alone And in in the readings that I did elsewhere of Kafka and Proust, um, motored by Elensi Xus's um, insight, I asked what it meant to be all alone. Why isn't it enough just to be alone? Why does Kafka and why does Proust and others say, ganz allein? I'm all alone. What is that allness of aloneness? Is alone not alone enough? And doesn't that doubling of the magnitude and weight of aloneness also release something? So what does it mean to be all alone? Would be the question that these writers um, prompt us to think about. Now, I was um, honoring our teacher Spinoza, the great philosopher who says that you're never really in a desert or vacant, but always um, in a kind of at least minimally concord or concordance or harmony, uh, of hearts, a meeting, a union of hearts that lacerate, that speak, that break, that beat, that name, that feel, even in and especially in withdrawal and absence and um, destitution. So we're always um, marked by the other in permanent ways and in incessantly we're part of a community even in in our greatest aloneness so that the great poet Rilke can ask who would hear me if I were to um, name my distress and stress. But even that call out to a kind of nobody or no one or no one picking up your call or listening in or holding you while you cry or worry in your um, own most solitary spin means that you're already calling out from a place of a certain kind of collectivity, but already the fact, and this is not Spinoza, but it will, will gain on it thanks to the access code granted to us by Sp- Spinoza, which is that language as law as that which um, limits and structures are being and language according to Heidegger is the house of being. And we want to consider language as part of a house arrest and also the double nature of language limiting and socializing and cutting us down because language often shows up as Uh, what Lacan calls le nom du père, so the no, the name of the father. I'll leave that with Kafka in his custody for a moment and shelf it, but the point being that language arrives at us as no, you can't do that, or no, here are your limits, and that's the limits of linguistic confinement as well in the house of being. At the same time, to the extent that we are um, inundated by language and called to order and come to in and as language we're already speaking to conversing with throwing a cable over to the other an other um, an internal alterity so that other can be throned or thrown down or seated Within understanding that those locations are kind of scrambled by um, technologies and other structuring instances of the way you talk to yourself repair yourself or talk down to yourself, which one wants to limit to the extent possible so. For Spinoza. Even in the greatest experience of destitution, of deserted and vacant being, you are always traversed by the other and always in contact through the heart space and by other modalities of concern and pleasure in the other that we discussed last week apropos of Hannah Arendt. And we could also discuss in terms of some superb Buddhist monks who urge joy in encounter. In any case, encounter in and through language already binds us to the other, no matter how alone you feel you are. It was uh, thanks to the poet, Ceylon, whom I've mentioned a few times, who traverses me day and night, um, that counter, the counter in encounter became something to think about. Um, so what is the, the little um, hit that the encounter, even the persecution of the encounter, as Levinas will say, elsewhere and differently, how do you measure or take or hold or carry the contre, the gegen in the begegnung, or the counter in encounter. So I'm also jamming on the counter here because that's part of the name of the rencontre philosophique, my host, my dwelling place my disrupted residence. What does it mean to to have a residence, to be dispossessed of a residence? And certainly I've been honored with a glorious residence that was cut short in some ways by the urgency of of the pandemic run that is still holding forth and holding us back in some ways. So for Spinoza, we are only more or less free, even when we think we're free and in our greatest freedom. Um, And that's in part, if I may reduce it to a thumbnail description or or a recall, that's because we don't know the causes of our freedom. Um, Even if you feel free, can you name and elaborate and understand the causes of your freedom? So this will be for another another discussion, what it means to be freed up, liberated, um, even in terms of the many tracts and thoughts on emancipation. Here I would refer you to um, Jean-Francois Lyotard's work, on on the, let's say, disappointed limitations of a true emancipation. But that's, again, for, I'm going to shelve that so that I can move through the day of deconfinement, the week of deconfinement, the weaknesses of deconfinement, and the question of whether one can be fully deconfined, whether or not, we had been um, marked and often fatally marked by this viral um, aggression. The viral aggression, by the way, is also a call for another justice. Um, Despite its calamitous um, disasters and, and aggressions, it also put out some demands and petitions on behalf of the earth, animals, of of racial justice. So it's a more complicated mapping and relational uh, imperative that's being brought to our attention than than merely um, seems to be um, designated by imagining a war. That's not to undermine the struggles and the devastation and the criminal negligence that has attended this viral outbreak. So there are different types of solitude. Let's have that as part of our lesson today. There's the cringing solitude, the aloneness of regressed states when you're terrified and you're child parts seem to predominate and scare the shit out of you there's abandonment there's the experience of night sweats and of desocialization or there's even the surplus socialization which leads to a certain kind of pull into solitude so surplus socialization might've occurred to you with too many intrusive phone calls, Zoom gatherings, Skype meetings, the familial stranglehold that uh, Kafka articulated so well, and that may have um, informed parts of your experience of, of lockdown. And the flooding demand of internal redistricting like how will you um handle yourself through this strange temporal warp that it goes has time running too quickly or you're already running out the clock suddenly it's it's quick then it's slow mo so it wasn't easy to um regulate or time our relation to time this in itself is a heavy existential legacy of lockdown that we want to continue to probe and um, read together. So um, there was also in terms of different, a different, uh, a a different type or a typology of solitude. There's also, and I invite you to, um, to list other types of solitude or journal about it uh, that you think you can designate or that you weren't able to achieve. A lot of people wanted to meditate, a lot of people wanted to write. It was a lot of busyness as almost um, a reactive, a commando reactivity, I'd say, to the uh, whole, uh, the, the emptiness that, that was suddenly imposed. But there was also, I think, on a more um, uh, upswinging kind of uh, register, there was also the triumphal sovereignty of a solitude hard one, bravely endured, that tells you, you have rocked this confinement. Phase one is behind you. Now, of course, I say that with um, certain excessive cheerleading uh, glee, but I do want us to um, open up and spill on the kinds of uh, solitudes that you may have discovered, the kinds of dimensions and interiorities that you were able to construct. And as we discussed previously, maybe you were able to... Um, promote and produce and shape a good object. Maybe you were called to your own most creativity or you remembered a part of yourself that had been uh, minoritized and sidelined. So there's the sovereignty of a solitude, bravely endured and hard won and well handled that tells you you've made it through a very tough, Pass, that a phase of, of endurance and testing, self testing, and um, difficulty is behind you. So time has clicked in and started um, surpassing and passing and allowing you to move through something that seemed um, un- unmovable. And yet you find. At the same time, that remembrance is swiftly fading. I mean, do you remember these yesterdays that were um, kind of blandly unfolding or manically appropriated and made to have you be an artist, a writer, very creatively um, swinging into the new technologies, not so new, but very, very many of you were called to inscribe something artistically and we should think about why that was and how that was and how necessary that is and will be so do you remember what is the relation to remembrance because confinement bears the traces of a traumatic snuff out the destitution of event So was this an event? In the sense that we think we understand it, an event or perhaps more profoundly, was it an event in the sense that you never capture an event? It bypasses you, you can't perceive it. Um, So it bypasses one's ability to understand and know what has happened. And I will address the depletion of our collective memory banks another time and ask what it means that you forget all the more for trying to remember. If I asked you to write down what you remember and how you remember this period of fear, illness and lockdown, um, I would um, want to hear how much goes into oblivion, into the folder of oblivion. So as we proceed, let us count up scenes of liberation, flickers of jubilation, emancipatory surges, no matter how diluted they appear to be after a period of celebratory grace. Is this something to celebrate or is it the beginning of a national mourning, an international pan national mourning that will never end so. A necessary melancholia, which um, is a mourning disorder, or will we give over ourselves over to another type of mourning disorder, which is um, um, manic uh, main so um, how does mania fit into the inability to mourn what is happening, whom we've lost, and what exactly... Um, uh, maps out as inextricable loss. So as I remember scenes of historical deconfinement, I think of the solemn dignified walk of Nelson Mandela who was freed at last from prison, the shocked faces of American troops liberating concentration camps and the looks of decimated inmates More disjunctively, I think of, and on an entirely different register, the frolicking leaps of pupils when school lets out for the summer, or the countless, again, another register that requires more transition. So excuse my scandalous leaps to absolutely non-reciprocal moments of freeing up. I think also of the countless people of color dismissed from a wrongful prison term, greeted by a small group who believed in them all along, a sister, a weeping mother, self-sacrificing Antigonies who go up against the state. Virginia Woolf said that women have always been in some form of confinement. You can feel the sway of their imagination and secret writing habits on the thick walls of older houses and buildings. Beyond the examples of social injustice, there is a way of seeing stuckness, which we've just, and are continuing to experience, as an existential quality, par excellence. It's a facticity. Even the granting of being where you are bereft of autonomy. So there's something that's still granting or giving where you stand stuck or sit stuck or lie stuck, where you are bereft of autonomy, but all the more beholden to responsibility. That's a rift between autonomy and responsibility that Kant addresses that um, we can discuss. Elsewhere, and I used to analyze our drug cultures when I wrote a kind of a dictionary, so when I was trying to address different dependencies and If you're truly autonomous, which is highly problematic as a, and, and I think Spinoza, Rousseau, Defoe and all the island dwellers who who are calling out to their communities, real and imaginary, uh, would not abide it for long. But if you were truly autonomous, you would have certain rights toward yourself to indulge in all sorts of um, um, what we call too quickly unhealthy habits and and already dependencies, which already annuls the the edge of autonomy. But what is the relation between responsibility and autonomy? This is one of the major questions that, um, that we will have had to confront not only now, but since at least the different typologies of liberations and confinements that um, have run through centuries of um, human self-exploration, self-expansion and disastrous overreach of the human trust in itself and its figurations and tropologies. And what I mean by that is that something like a virus really humbles and humiliates and limits our sense of the ability to steer ourselves with control, with knowledge, with sovereignty, all of these important political and um, philosophical and existential terms have to be um, brought to, a hearing, because they really seem to uh, overwhelm our our thoughts and overestimate the capacity of what has passed for human to um, to be a guest, to to host, and to um, show respect for the worlds that still need to be created, retrieved, honored, and also that require the strength to um, set them free, meaning let them go. So this has uh, been a little too fast for us, but um, that's okay. I'd like you to take what you can from some of these um, contemplative clusters and let us continue to think together. In the meanwhile, as we go out of lockdown and maybe return to it and maybe feel the ambivalence and fear of an artificially set clock that wants our freedom from restrictive norms that have now um, limited our freedoms, let us think of all of the Problems that um, face us with with um, humble incertitude and commitment to that juncture between mortality and community and uh, what it is we owe responsibly to the other. So take care and see you next week. Bye.